0: Woke Pedagogies is a podcast that engages in critical conversations about inequities in our society. Join me, Elena Fowlis, and co-host David Staley as we work to build inclusive spaces of teaching and learning that unapologetically and intentionally dialogue with issues that center the lives and experiences of students, educators, and the community.
1: Discussing race can be challenging. What strategies can white faculty and instructors in particular use when discussing race in the classroom? How do you navigate tendencies to treat students of color as spokespersons for their entire race? How can you negotiate racialized power dynamics in conversations about race when you are white and facilitating the conversation? Join our conversation with Matt Coleman, Associate Professor of Geography. As we discuss how he has learned to engage his own whiteness in his classroom teaching over the years, while also grappling with OSU's racialized history as a land grant institution. We're joined today by Matt Coleman, professor in the Department of Geography. Welcome. Thank you. Tell us how you are personally thinking about your role as a scholar educator in the times in which we live.
2: Well, you know, I guess, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to thank you guys for this project. I think it's like super important and I I hope to be able to contribute however I can to it. Um, And I want to say a lot of the things that I'm going to say haven't been figured out in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot from my colleagues. Uh, I've learned a lot by reading. I've learned a lot from my students of color. I've learned a lot from my white students. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've also tried in various ways to teach about race and social justice in the classroom uh, with varying degrees of success. And uh, so all these things are, you know, the background that I'm bringing to this conversation today. This moment has particular challenges for educator scholars, but it also has some opportunities that are built into it. And I'm seeing a lot of those opportunities, actually. And as someone who teaches and researches about race is that there's a lot of attention to it outside the classroom. And mm-hmm. one of the biggest shifts I'm seeing here with respect to my role as an educator is that students are coming into the classroom with challenging questions in hand, mm-hmm. and they are hungry for answers. Whereas in years past, um, my pedagogy was more about uh, inviting students to follow me on a, on a journey where I could just start asking the questions that they're coming in already asking. So the starting point for the conversation now has been changed. And, you know, as a result, my whole approach to teaching has really shifted over the past, you know, three or four years. I've always found teaching enjoyable and I've always put a lot of effort into it. But it's also been frustrating. And one of the things I have been frustrated with is the sort of lack of urgency in the classroom or I should say the relative scarcity of urgency in the classroom. Some students come in and they have things they want to talk about. And that's great. I've always appreciated that. I'm not saying students are indifferent or they're not smart. I'm just saying that what's happened actually over the the past couple of years is that there is uh, a new sense of urgency in the classroom, in the lecture hall. And students are coming much better prepared to ask difficult questions and engage in, in difficult sorts of conversations. In fact, I was saying to one of our colleagues the other day that uh, when I first started here 15 years ago, you know, students were not well-prepared to, to engage with these sorts of questions, and they are now. You know, I, I'm teaching right now this uh, first-year freshman seminar on policing and race, uh, which I have taught uh, for four years now. And uh, those students are on fire uh they're reading super difficult material they're talking through difficult issues they're they're dealing with each other in a really great way um they're ready to question the world they're ready to question their place in it and they're like 18 years old um so it's really a joy to be in that setting and the reason that setting is working is because of this stuff that's going on out in the streets super high energy in the classroom because we're effectively being led by developments on the streets.
0: Right. Uh, There is a certain um, heightened sense of awareness of um, not only what's happening, you know, with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, COVID-19, and everything that associated with that economic and health uh, disparities that are being revealed And I think students um, not only have that awareness, but they also want to know, what's their role in it? How can they make a difference, right? How do we acknowledge what's happening outside to inform classroom dialogue, dig into this and what's happening outside in a way that encourages this dialogue among each other? I imagine you have students from all kinds of backgrounds, female, male, black, white, maybe Latino. How do we do that in a way that encourages that dialogue?
2: Well, that's a really good question. And I actually have quite a lot of thoughts on the challenge of acknowledging the world. I mean, I think right now, because of the popular pedagogy that's happening in the streets, around race and policing, which is what I teach and what I research, I mean, there's already a language going on out there, which is basically making the case, for example, for the ubiquity of racialized policing or for the historical continuity of racialized policing, for the geographical specifics of it. There's a whole language out on the streets for talking about the mechanics of racialized policing. And... That kind of, you know, that brings us beyond just merely acknowledging the world. I think most students are actually kind of beyond the problem of acknowledging. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, pro sports, it was like four or five years ago that it was highly controversial for a sports figure to take a knee or to acknowledge Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. as if those facts were somehow in doubt, you know. And now it's just, it's not controversial in the same way. I mean, there are entire sports leagues that are mobilizing around, Black Lives Matter and you know it's that mobilization which obviously exceeds sports I think has shuffled the conversation along beyond recognition just to be clear you know I do think recognition is an important part of a critical education you have to get students to get in tune with the world but it's just a first step and a critical education cannot stop with the challenge of recognition because the problem with recognition is it it often holds the world at bay You'll be invited to recognize something as if it's apart from you. Mm -hmm. And then you won't delve into its mechanics and it will be held sort of at a distance. Um, And, you know, the next level of teaching, for example, starts when you push students to dig into, you know, in my case, policing and race to acknowledge the mechanics and the institutions and the peoples and the practices. And ultimately, when they engage with the problem of white supremacy and how white supremacy is part of their life as well. Uh, and that's when the next, you know, level starts. And I'll say that they're coming into the classroom, like, you know, they're coming back from a summer break, having read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow by themselves over the summer. Mm-hmm. Wow. And or they they watched, uh, you know, Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th with a bunch of friends over the summer. Um wow without my prompting, they're using phrases like settler colonialism or racial capitalism or school to prison pipeline or police militarization. They're doing it of their own accord. And so they're already beyond the the, the challenge of recognition. I mean, they're already at the stage where they're trying to make sense of language. And so I really think that the the contemporary moment, it's almost pushing us beyond having just to merely recognize something. Now we can get down to the sort of the the guts of the question and ask how it's working and to what effect.
0: Right. There is a sense of urgency to be among a group of students that is ready for that or that comes with that knowledge that you just mentioned.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, you are white. We want to make that apparent for our listeners. How do you address your own whiteness in conversations about race and justice in the classroom?
2: Uh, that, that's a great question, and I think it really you know cuts probably to the core of our conversation, and it's one of the reasons why I think this project you guys are organizing is pretty interesting. I mean, let me start out by saying that I, you know, I don't think it's possible for me as a white male to teach race in the classroom without pedagogically engaging with the fact at some point in that class that there are very few black or Latinx or Native American faculty at all ranks of the professoriate In my discipline anyway, and in many others too, but I usually engage it through my discipline. And when I say pedagogically engaging, I mean I make an explicit point. I have students think through how it is that a disproportionate chunk of the professors in front of them look like me. They're male uh, and they're white. I don't just do this actually in my seminars on policing and race. I do this in every single classroom experience I have, whether it's a 2000 level class or my capstone classes. You know, one of the ways I get students to start thinking about race, but also about masculinity is to just push them on this question of authority. And and I challenge them basically to their face and in the plainest language possible to consider how they are prompted to think about authority in terms of masculinity and race. And I talk about this in terms of a larger economy of sports and music and business, and media, and politics. I ask like, what kind of authority figures they grew up with and what those authority figures you know, look like and do they look like me, for example. I ask them, you know, are they more likely to listen to me when I'm talking about race and racialization and those sorts of issues than they would be, for example, to a professor who's black. I ask them if it's possible for me to teach it with fewer road bumps. You know, with fewer arms crossed across chests in the the lecture hall, for example, would what I'm teaching be seen as somehow too subjective? Uh, Would they listen to me? Would they be taking notes so studiously? So we, we really go there and we have that conversation and I think it's that in your face tactic that I've developed, which I've found very, very, uh, very, very useful. There's lots of problems. You know, one of the problems, of course, is that I am, in, I am mobilizing white masculine authority to get students to think differently about white masculine authority, which, of course, doubles down on white masculine authority. So it's a very difficult conversation to have, and you really just have to have it. And you have to feel the crowd and walk the crowd through it. So I don't have like a 10-step system to talk about this and I'm sure there are a lot of problems with it, but I have developed it in response to what I see is probably the worst pedagogical practice the white professors might engage with in front of a classroom. And that is hand wringing about the whiteness of authority or hand wringing about the whiteness of the discipline or hand wringing about the whiteness of the university, Uh, sort of being able to disavow it from a distance you know, if there's one thing which is just totally disingenuous for me to do, for example, it's just to point out my discipline's demographic ills is if the reason I am standing in front of that class as an authority is unrelated to that. But if you just wring your hands and basically lament the whiteness of the professoriate or the whiteness of authority, for example, and stop the conversation there, it's going to do a lot of bad work. Students of color, for example, are really going to are probably are likely to interpret this as evidence of the inevitable or unalterable marginalization of scholars of color and scholarship of color. And I don't think that's going to be materially beneficial to anybody or, you know, emotionally beneficial to anybody. But I also think that that hand wringing approach gives exactly the wrong cues to white students. When it comes to thinking about how to speak about race and authority, it suggests to white students that, that racial authority is somehow unearned or unthought or innocent. And I think that that's actually not a very good way for thinking about authority and race It occludes thinking about race as an active existing structure, as something which people are invested in in something which confers authority and confers racialized authority in particular, and which kind of rebinds like race and gender and class and masculinity, whatever, all these things to authority. And, you know, that's why I sort of, I always orient my teaching on race and authority to questions of structures and institutions. I mean, it's not something that just exists out there. People buy into it. And so you have to let students know that it's a people problem, it's an infrastructure, it's, you know, it's alive in the world. I don't know.
0: You know, I like what you say um, about um, acknowledging sort of that privilege or that space that you occupied. And it reminds me a few years ago, my students were surprised when I said, you know, I'm I'm Latina, but uh, my community doesn't always see me as part of their community. And they're like, what do you mean? (laughs) I'm like, no, they see me as somebody in academia, like a Latina in academia. And so I have to gain their trust, too. Um, They have to get to know me to be able to trust me. The fact that I am Latina doesn't give me an automatic pass to the community that I work with. Absolutely. so how do you gain the trust of your students of color as a white instructor, especially as they're bringing uh, race centrally into the discussions that you might have in your classes?
2: You know, it's a great question. And you know, I got to do a shout out to a colleague of mine in the Department of Gender Studies at Queen's University in Kingston in Ontario in Canada, Catherine McKittrick, who's written some great stuff on how critical scholars talk about and think about blackness or brownness. And and what she says, you know, I I, I want to go into a lot of detail here, but she effectively says that even critical scholars and particularly critical scholars will repeat this identity between blackness and brownness and violence. So they talk about black and brown communities in terms of the violences that are visited on them and how that narrows the question of blackness and brownness to the question of violence or, or inequality or discrepancy or disadvantage. And I remember when I first read uh, Professor McKittrick's work, I was like, you know, damn, I'm finding it really hard to think of a so-called critical scholar who doesn't somehow traffic in that association between violence and blackness and brownness. And so I get students to read Catherine McKittrick, and then I'll talk about my own work on sheriffing and immigration enforcement, and I will show students by looking at my own work how I have fallen into the trap that mckittrick has identified and i will show you know how i've tried to take on some of professor mckittrick's ideas so that my own work is not centered on blackness and brownness and violence but is sort of more expansive than that and my experience is that students of color really appreciate that that kind of a conversation and that that develops trust so that exercise is pedagogical because it's good to get white students to think about blackness in ways which are not just tethered to state violence, but it's also useful from a trust perspective because then you can reach out to students of color uh, in the classroom and sort of make connections with them to let them know that you understand that, that this is in play.
1: So I'm interested to know how you negotiate those moments in the classroom when other students might defer to students of color as the, quote, experts on race or as the spokesperson for all people of color? How do you negotiate that encounter?
2: Yeah, well, that's actually a really difficult question. I mean, some of that you have to just do in place. I mean, you've got to be prepared to read students' body language and how they're talking and speaking. And, you you know, some students of color are going to want to speak and are going to want to take that responsibility at some times and then not at others, and you've just got to be in the moment and attentive. And so there's no magic. There's no you know silver bullet there. You just have to be engaged, obviously. But there's also a lot of work that you can do to steer white students' expectations about non-white students in a different direction by teaching things like white supremacy and racism uh, in a way which doesn't encourage white students to, to go to necessarily to black and brown students in the classroom. So, you know, for example, when I teach about racism and and policing. I teach about practice. I teach about institutions. I teach about policies. I teach about ideas, you know, I, I teach about particular individuals, particular groups. Then again, to refer again to Professor McKittrick is to dislodge violence from a black and a brown problem, connecting racialized violence to this larger sort of structure of white supremacy and investigating all those institutions that comprise white supremacy, which of course are institutions which white students are very familiar with. They just haven't perhaps like been trained to look at those institutions critically. It's a way of making white students realize that racism and racialized violence, for example, isn't something that just implicates black communities. It also implicates white communities because white communities are where those institutions are anchored. You know, human geography is actually has a long history of trying to think about people, what's happening to specific peoples and specific places in terms of larger networks, larger connections. I want to say explicitly that critical teaching about race requires that that you teach students about how racialized violence is embodied and it is experienced, but it also requires thinking about how that violence exceeds the communities it's aimed at. Again, that's where critical pedagogy starts. That's one way, for example, that I try to get white students to not think about black and brown colleagues in their classrooms as having to speak for the entirety of racialized violence, because hopefully they'll recognize that it belongs to their community, too, just from a very different sort of perspective.
0: Mm. Matt, what suggestions do you have to get us and maybe newer faculty ready to talk about race in their classes?
2: You know, I think there's this misconception actually among a lot of faculty that, that somehow talking about race is too controversial, that talking about race is somehow too dangerous, or it's too divisive, or some or that it's not wanted in the classroom. And I have experienced none of that. I have experienced a student body that wants to talk about uh, the contemporary moment in America in particular, there is an appetite actually for talking about race. And so, you know, as a faculty member, I don't see it as a, as a risk for me to talk about race. I, I see it as an incumbent on me, you know, to talk about race and I get prepared for it by reading a lot reading, and yeah. writing a lot and thinking a lot about my lectures and about new material that I can bring into the classroom.
0: Right. And you said earlier, which I appreciate, and that's one of the things that I do. If students are already bringing material, you know, that they read or that they saw a movie, a certain clip uh, in whatever media they consume, that's an opportunity for me as a faculty member to to look into that so that I can understand what they're viewing or what the story is that they read Because I need to be informed, too, of what they're seeing and what they're consuming to be able to have those relevant conversations in the classroom. And that feeds to what you just said about reading and being prepared, um, not only, you know, through books and research and things like that on our own, but also including some of the things that students are bringing uh, with them and, and wanting to talk about.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, and, and, uh, you know, good teaching is about that dialogic process. It's about moving, you know, back and forth. Good teachers learn as much from their students as students learn from their teachers.
0: Matt, are there any initiatives in the college uh, or across the university that are promising for helping us educate for citizenship in our pursuit for social justice or a more equitable society?
2: there are lots of existing opportunities uh, on campus for bringing students into the fold of academic discussions, for example, through colloquia uh, where somebody with particular expertise comes in and shares their research and faculty members sit as students effectively. And I think the one thing that we might do, and and of course, history is doing this uh, really nicely with the 1619 lecture series Um, is, you know, make sure that these spaces and these settings are open to students. And the point is to bring students into those spaces so that they can effectively sit alongside other faculty members as students in common and listen to somebody and engage in common. I think that's really invaluable and I think we should do more, more along those lines.
1: So how do you see our land grant mission, informing how we engage this moment?
2: That's an important question, and I don't actually think that enough of our colleagues appreciate what it means to be a specifically a a land-grant institution in terms of accessibility, in terms of affordability, and also in terms of this sort of distinct uh, mix of teaching, research, and service, and the fact that the three of those things come together. I also think that obviously using the term land grant is extremely problematic. Uh, It doesn't have a positive valence. In fact, uh, you know, we have to remember that institutions like Ohio State are land grant institutions because upwards of 650,000 acres of indigenous land was taken and given to states for free uh, to financially seed this institution and land from across the country, from Mississippi to Michigan to Oregon, all over the place. And so that's something we should also have a conversation about, you know, the progressive aspects of this term land grant, but also the historical aspects of the land grant institution, which actually mean that institutions like Ohio State are racialized as institutions because they are based on genocide and and dispossession. When I think about land grant institutions, I think about institutions that teach to a full spectrum of students. And that full spectrum of students is something we've got to pay attention to. I mean, in terms of Ohio State, I understand that we're doing pretty good in terms of like working class students. uh, And that's indicated by Pell Grant data, which I think is about 25% of the student body right now. But, you know, in terms of reaching minority students, it's just not, you know, we're off the mark. So black students currently make up just over 6% of Ohio State's undergraduate student body whereas roughly 67% are white, non-Hispanic white. So there's a massive gap there between Ohio State as an institution and then the state of Ohio. What I've come to realize is that if I want a full spectrum of students in my classes, I can design a class. I can design a course that will get me a full spectrum of students in the class. I mean, it means we have to actively tweak our syllabi to address the kinds of issues that students are interested in. And... That is a form of outreach. When I get a full spectrum of students in my classes and I manage to teach them and introduce them to great ideas, they go back into communities. That's a sort of impact or that's a sort of an outreach. That's another kind of citation that has nothing to do with like impact factors and journals and like manuscripts. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, faculty really need to start thinking about how to reach a full spectrum of students.
0: Well, Matt, thank you so much for this conversation.
2: Great, thank you so much.